You are listening to WCB Newsline. Welcome, both of you. Um, I'm going to have you introduce yourselves and who you are and just a little bit about maybe what you've done career-wise so everybody knows who you are. Um, and then we'll just kind of get into telling more about yourselves and your, your life. So we'll start with Keiko. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. I, my name is Keiko Namekanta, of course. I, uh, after getting my degree um, in rehabilitation teaching uh, from Western Michigan University, I first worked for State of Illinois. They, well, they changed the name. Um, but what used to be called Department of Rehabilitation, Rehabilitation. I was a, a teacher um, in the vocational rehabilitation program and worked with a VR counselor. And I visited people in their homes, teaching them uh, blindness skills. Uh, and then I covered, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four counties, neighboring uh, Cook County, which has Chicago. Um, then we moved to Seattle and I got employment with Department of Services for the Blind as a field RT, rehabilitation teacher. Uh, and I, we did some home visits. Those were the days that we used to do home teaching, so-called. There were two other staff and we kind of covered uh, King County, Seattle area. And then there was a big layoff. So I went to work for, I guess they went through several name changes, but at the time it was called Vision Services. And then uh, more popularly known as Community Services for the Blind and Partially Sighted. And then before they closed, they were Sight Connection. I worked for them for a couple of years as an itinerant and my area primarily was in Seattle, but also covered East Side in, in Bellevue, um, Kirkland, uh, and so forth. And I did combination of using a taxi, metro, and towards the end, they did provide driver services that, that they reimbursed me for. And then opportunity came up with uh, DSP in the orientation and training center and I went to work for them in the training center as a communication instructor. Uh, I taught braille, uh, typing, those were the days before the computers and then we did some echo and apple to eat and then uh, I guess I worked for as a VRC for about a year and a half until there was an opportunity with the independent living program and I was their service delivery coordinator I think from let's see 91 to 94 I got a chance to apply for the orientation and training center program manager so I got that job in 94 and I retired in 2014 so that's basically my career and I'm retired. My second career is a homemaker, 
<laughs> housewives, grandparents, and do a little bit of volunteering. Okay. And then Naomi, talk about your career a little bit too. Sure. Uh, my name is Naomi Namakata. I am an assistive technology specialist for the Washington Assistive Technology Program, which is based out of the University of Washington. Um, and in this job, I manage uh, the I Can Connect program, which is the National Deaf-Blind Equipment Distribution Program. We partner with Perkins School for the Blind to provide services to all Washington State residents who qualify for this program. And currently, I have about seven um, part-time uh, trainers around the state. In this job, I also um, do a lot of professional trainings. We have a contract with the, the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation to do trainings for them. Um, we also have a project with King County to do some senior trainings um, in the senior center. So kind of a wide range of trainings and kind of presentations um, that I do for this position. I've been here for since 2000, I mean, 2017. So it's what, about five years now. Prior to that, I worked for the Department of Services for the Blind in their VR program started in 2001 as a counselor aide, uh, which is now a rehab technician. And they supported me, DSB supported me in going back to school to get some computer related um, classes, coursework and trainings um, and became an AT specialist for DSB in the VR program, the vocational rehabilitation program and did that for many years. I covered almost all parts of Washington state over the years, except for the very Eastern part. I did Yakima and Ellensburg even, but not Spokane and Tri-Cities. So it was a great experience and I gained a lot of uh, skills and just met a lot of really cool people over the years. And you have children as well? I do, yes. I have a son. His name is Ren, and he is about to turn seven. His birthday is at the end of the month. So he's in first grade. Keeping That's a lovely age. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's the best. <laughs> okay, so I think my first question, Keiko, what do you feel like is the most important thing that your work in the industry has been or what you've accomplished that you would say is the one most important thing? Wow. Let's see. I guess, you know, I spent the most time at DSB in, uh, in the orientation training center managing the program. So I guess it's, it's um, the training center started off as kind of, I don't know, a place uh, um, where people sent their students or clients to, to acquire skills. But a lot of times, you know, they were really not uh, focused on the next steps. 
And so I think creating a value or meaning to the training center and that, you know, you, I used to feel always like a stepchild, you know, of the, the, or, uh, the Department of Services for the Blind. The most important part was the VR program and employment and so forth. And I firmly believe that alternative skills, good, you know, solid alternative skills, training and acquisition of skills are the most important, critical first step in anyone's success. You know, if you don't have the skills, if you can't survive as an individual, get to places, look good, you know, and um, and perform not only the the job tasks, but all of the other skills that I guess, for lack of other thing, alternative skills to blindness that really makes you a full person and to be able to participate. So. I wanted to add that, you know, hone in that kind of a, a importance or value to the training program and mean something to the administration and also um, to the counselors, you know, the real valuable resource. So not only training, but assessment of people's skills and, and how they can potentially succeed and what they could achieve. And, and I think, all of the, the the programs that we've added in the training center um, had to do with developing, helping those uh, students develop themselves to their full potential, to be able to begin that journey towards you know their future employment outcome, um, and also communicating with the counselors and really helping them to to address their uh, information. So I guess you know having made a difference or um, uh, I don't know, adding value, added value, the OTC program to the, the VR system. So become more of an integral part rather than a separate entity that counselor, you know, use to, to deal with clients that they didn't know what to do with. Yeah, it sounds like a very holistic approach, you know, not just this piece or that piece, but definitely the whole person. And I, I love that concept. On the opposite end of that, you know, being retired now, do you see an area that you still think could be improved upon with the services? Oh, well, I try to not meddle. And <laughs> 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 the program, so I kind of totally uh, divorced myself from DSB activities other than just once in a while checking in to see what's going on so forth yeah. and so on. And, and I did focus on working with the um, site connection before they closed. And I, to me, being a retired person and a lot of people lose vision at a later life. And you know that like majority of the people, overwhelming number of people lose vision after they reach you know, 60 or 65, sure. variety of, uh, you know, eye diseases and so forth and so on, and other, you know, secondary um, issues. That population is so underserved and, and there's so many more people, just because you're old <laughs> doesn't mean that, you know, you deserve a full life to be able to continue to live your life, you know, as, 
independently as possible. And understanding that you know, as we get older, things will change. But the beauty of independent living services is that you, um, it's not one time limited. You know, like the VR program tries to move people, give them all the skills they need, and then give them a really good background so that they could continue to not depend on the rehab services and mm -hmm. to to move forward and so forth. But with the older population, you know, that your your circumstances, your your um, not only the environment but your physical condition change and vision changes. And that means a new adaptation to you know your new condition so forth. So it's I love the the fact that people can you know reapply if their circumstances changes. I know that now the lighthouse is fully staffed and they're beginning to deal with waiting lists and hopefully they will expand and so forth. So I guess if I have to pinpoint somewhere that needs you know, more work is that independent living program where, you know, people who are not working have place to go to get services. Right. I, I don't think you're the only one that would express that sentiment. I've heard that multiple places, that that is definitely an underserved population. So I'm glad that you are putting words to that thought. Okay. Yeah. So Naomi, I would like to know, what is the one thing that you feel is the most important thing you learned from your mom? Wow. Um, let's see. There's so many things that I learned from her, including playing the piano and <laughs> how to cook, you know, lasagna and things like that. But I would say she really helped me realize that you know, having a disability, being blind, it's not something that you can still live a full, rich, independent life, be successful, you know, in your, in your home life as a mother, as a parent, you know, as a daughter, but also in your professional life and your career. So, I mean, she really inspired me to, you know, work in this field because, I saw from her example that with the right skills and training and attitude, you can really, you know, achieve anything that anyone who is fully sighted is capable of or more. Yes. And then on the reverse side of that, what would be the biggest thing you want to pass down to Ren? Hmm. I would say... I mean, the same thing that you wouldn't judge someone um, based on any difference, you know, in the way that they would do things. I mean, I remember growing up as a child and even still, you know, going places with my mom, it's like people, you know, stare. It's, whoa, someone blind, you know, and, yeah, you know, people are very well-meaning and I would say now way more educated about you know disabilities in general and that sort of thing but you know back in the day growing up you know going to the makeup counter with her it was mm -hmm. 
the the women behind the counter would not address her directly. They would address me and ask me what she wanted. And I just thought that was so rude. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that still happens a lot. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I see it happen still. And I think, you know, so for Ren, I want him to understand that having a disability is just a difference. And it doesn't mean that you should treat anybody any differently. Thank you. So Keiko, that is a huge career path that you just gave a whole dissertation on. I mean, wow. (laughs) So my question is, what was your inspiration for the beginning of all that? What was the part that made you say, this is what I really want to do? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I was kind of reflecting back, you know, um, my experiences as early as I, what I could remember. But I think the most significant, you know, I've had visual changes as I went through in uh, earlier elementary school. Um, you know, I noticed that like I couldn't read the front I couldn't read the textbooks. I could see people at a distance. I couldn't, um, my eyes wouldn't adjust to quick movement. So those kinds of things led to a lot of uh, reluctance to participate in, in physical activities and, and so forth that required quick response. And then by the time I got to the point that I was not able to see in third grade or fourth grade to read the books, then, you know, I kind of developed more of honed in my memory skills, you know, and I listened fairly well and try to fake all that stuff. We uh, came to the United States in, um, let's see, in uh, 59. So I was 11 in the fifth grade. And initially we started, uh, uh, what do you call that, um, regular school, and my cousin was in it. So I, uh, you know, I, he was an interpreter in my class and so forth. But eventually they found out that I really didn't see very much of anything. So they um, uh, got me an itinerant teacher who recommended that, you know, I, I really need to, to learn some blindness skills, not large print and because, you know, reading first letters of a word and uh, the tales and the that a long tease and so forth, you know, and I couldn't see the little letter letters, mm-hmm. especially little things like eyes and you know something that's flatter, you know. Right. Um, so they got me to learn braille. I think uh, second semester in in seventh grade. You know, unfortunately though, I was really excited to learn and I learned pretty quickly, but my English skills weren't all that great, so I was struggling not just with Braille, but really identifying words and so forth and so on. I really, really focused a lot on academics, you know, trying to, to, to learn, improve English and to kind of succeed in school. So academics was my whole focus through um, high school and first two years of college. But um, backing up, um, I attended a, a blindness skill training rehabilitation center in Illinois in Chicago summer I think was the eight-week program where we learned you know cane skills under the sleep shades um and then some of the you know like sewing techniques the eating techniques all that stuff you're supposed to learn you know independent living skills 
my mother was a very, very strong uh, person who had high expectations. Her thing was, I don't want others to look at you because that you can't do this because you're blind, you know? <laughs> Good for her. She had, yeah, she had expectation that I would perform age-appropriate things. So by the time I attended this training center, I had no issues with like, um, you know, doing putting together simple meals for myself and, you know, cleaning, laundry. I used to do the family laundry in the summertime and then the dressing and so forth. So picking up my clothes, you know, we used to put curls in our hair. Remember the rollers and things? Yes. Uh, back in those days. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I did all that. But there, were, there were kids who attended who were the same age as me who, <laughs> I remember one, one morning this kid, uh, you know, was kind of uh, crying because she couldn't find the buttons to put on the dress. Well, because she had to dress inside out, you know, of course she couldn't. Put <laughs> so, so I thought, oh my goodness, this is really not good. You know, kids, by the time you get to be 13, 14, you should know when things are right side up, you know, and uh, and then you should be able to dress yourself with that no problem. You know, you should be able to, to uh, you know, uh, take yes. a shower and all those kinds Absolutely. of things. Absolutely. So anyway, so that's when I thought, oh, well, this is something I want to do, you know. I think that was my first time that I started thinking that, oh, I want to be a teacher for the blind. You know, as I say, I focused on trade academics so that I could really go to college. That was my whole, throughout my high school, that was my primary focus is that I have good enough grades to be able to go to college. Well, so, I really, I, mean, I also my... really like the fact that you brought up the thought of not only learning to function as a blind person and learning Braille, but the whole language barrier as well. I mean, that's, that's a lot of things in one fell swoop. A lot of people don't, don't have, wouldn't even think about the second language part on top of it that's huge i remember in back in uh, when i first came to the united states the first summer everybody thought not realizing how little vision i had they signed me up for a ymca summer program so you know that you did a lot of play and arts and stuff like that i could see things close hand but my biggest concern was that i keep up with the rest of the kids you know as they change one activity to another and stay with it and I didn't know any of those kids and my frustration wanting to tell them that I really can't see and I need your help so mm -hmm. I remember writing you know the edge of the newspaper that we were working I think we were in a craft class and so you had a newspaper spread all over the table and on the edge of it I said I can't see you know those are the things that I learned right and in classroom, I think it was by the time I got to that, um, uh, the, the YMCA program was, I think I was been here six months and I, you know, learned a few words and that's whatever. And then somebody read that and, said, and I think finally convinced that, you know, I can see and somebody, you know, walked in front so I could see to follow. So, so I mean, I survived that summer, but that was the most frustrating thing. And, and then people didn't really understand the vision level of, or lack of vision that I, 
I had. Until you have key words, and it's very difficult to explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother didn't speak a word of English, and she was already working, and my dad was working, so it, you know they couldn't really take. So I mean, I was pretty much on my own. Plus, my cousin, he tried to explain things, but you know, he had only been here in the United States three years before I was. <laughs> he wasn't all that great about the details, you know. Sure. So, um, yeah, I think it's a double handicap, I guess. You know, vision, uh, lack of vision, but also not being able to express the amount of visual issues that I had, and you know, communicating that to the teachers and so forth. But you know, people were really, really kind. The teachers were kind and. And kids, because I I was kind of different than novelty, you know, so, mm-hmm. uh, and the teacher asked them to be, be nice and show me around, she can't see well, and so forth and so on. So, you know, they were really one of the uh, female students, she became my friend, but, you know, she'd kind of hold my hand and take me places. And, and you know, those schools are dodge inside, you know, in the hallways, old yeah. buildings. Yeah, so, I mean, I used to follow that white line on the edges. <laughs> By the time I got to be in high school, then I began to feel comfortable with my English and and to be able to communicate. And and one good thing about uh, having spent uh, gone to school in Japan was, you know, that math is a thing, right? You you add, subtract, yeah. and divide, and whatever, all of that stuff. And at the time, you know, Japan, I had uh, finished two semesters, or two trimesters, so, and their math was much more advanced. I was already doing some basic algebra, you know, with X's and Y's and stuff, mm-hmm. and and solving those problems, like the train comes at a certain speed, you know, from one direction, how long would they, you know, kind of, um, where would they meet, or I don't know, something like that, you know, so that it involved <laughs> X, Y. Um, yes. So, so you know, I came to the United States, and we were doing addition, subtractions, and like uh, three column additions and subtraction. That was nothing, you know. As yeah, so you at least see. had an advantage there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, so yeah. I, mean, I, there was something that I could always say. Yeah, that you know, I did well. Well, is there anything like now that you want to do in your retirement? You know, just like bucket list, or you know, what are your goals and enjoyment factors? And I hear that you know you taught Naomi to play the piano, so I'm assuming that you play the piano as well. Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I did try learning braille music, but, you know, it's slow. And then getting braille music, I guess it's more, I don't know how much it's available. And I always learned braille. I mean, I've always learned uh, music by ear. So mm-hmm. my teacher would record, you know, uh, sections at a time, hands separate, don't have a good enough ear to be able to hear and then duplicate. You know, I don't have that kind of talent. So it's always been a, a labor-intensive process to to master a piece. So I mean, I I do some you know stuff, uh, learn pieces uh, for church. I I don't do that anymore, but I used to be able to fill in if they needed somebody to do mm-hmm. the accompaniment. So music is a you know I I get enjoyment through listening to 
kids uh, play. Um, and our grandson, one of my grandson is learning piano. And so I go and sit and listen to it. And then I kind of try to imitate his stuff that I could still do. <laughs> yeah. So music, in terms of other enjoyment, I download books from the bard a lot. Um, that's my go-to for the book thing. I like to cook. So I do, you know, now with the COVID stuff, you know, I've been cooking three meals seven days a week uh, once in a while you know we go out and or take in you know bring in stuff and I do contribute to like family food stuff like that we do a lot of walking for leisure and I would love to one of my goals is to travel to Europe because that was my dream to be able to do at least one of that we went to Japan several times and and I like to experience European culture I, I love in the classical music because of my piano and stuff like that and mm-hmm. I, I think castles you know <laughs> and some of that yes. kind of a experience that you don't have in the United States right I'll so, go with you then, <laughs> oh good yeah yeah I'm trying to talk my husband into it but yeah and the other things that I you know started doing um volunteer work I was voluntary psychedelics as I said but I started teaching braille there and developed the introduction to Braille curriculum where we just spend a couple hours and introduce people. And I always felt that like people make decisions about uh, learning or not learning Braille based on what they hear without really, you know, getting into it. If you can't see well, and if you just touch Braille, whatever, you know, just for a second or two, how would you know, you know, what, what you're able to do? And, and so we started this, um, intro program where we could just in, just introduce the alphabet how it's, it's you know made and have them get a chance to feel what braille is and we do it in a group so that people they read together or some align at a time so that you mm-hmm. know people don't have to be feel embarrassed if they can't figure that out you know mm-hmm. they have they have others in the class figuring that out so we try to make it really fun and uh, you know it just just an explore exploration process. We did teach start this beginning class where we taught Braille alphabet and basic punctuation. I started doing that at the library before COVID started, and we did a couple of intro classes. And then I'm hoping that we'll be able to go back and resume. Yeah, that, that was uh, that would be great. And then to be able to do at least if you could teach UEB and contracted broad teach them numbers mm-hmm. now that they have that zoom x and hopefully when it gets into beyond the demo project uh stage and people right. are able to get equipment that works <laughs> and dependable <laughs> reliable and stuff like that you know hopefully the more people will be able to use it because i really think that older people who may have some uh, tactile limitation be able to feel the braille dots could you could you know uh, increase intensity the braille yes. dots and, and you could control the speed and how you want to read that stuff and it you only see one line at a time so you're not going to have confusion between lines and so forth so i think it is a great great tool device and hopefully that we'll be able to help people who may have hearing issues because mm-hmm. you get older you don't hear things well also uh, people you know who can't really large print is really inefficient 
you know, you could only make your screen larger so much. And then you're right. reading letter by letter. So you might as well read for help and learn to do that. And so, you know, and then beyond just labeling personal things, I think it would be a really a good tool for people to access like email, to be able to read it, um, to be able to, you know, get their contact list and get their phone numbers. All that stuff. I know iPhone does all that stuff, but that I would, and you could hook it up with Zoom um, X as well. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm curious about Naomi's thoughts on this technology. Well, I love technology. <laughs> I remember hauling the 24 inch, 50 pound CRT monitors up apartment stairs that you know where there's no elevator and. Thank goodness that things are improving. I really am a fan of products that are made based on, you know, universal design principles. You know, we talk about it a lot for homes and buildings and with the ADA. Um, but I think using those concepts and applying them to technology in general that anyone can access is kind of hopefully the path forward, the specialized technology, you know, like braille displays and note takers and CCTVs or video magnifiers are, you know, have a place and they're very important, but they're so expensive. And I think having some mainstream technology that is accessible to lots of people is kind of the path forward, or at least, you know, it makes um, access easier. And then on the flip side of it, you know, I think more and more uh, businesses and organizations and, you know, uh, government agencies understand how important it is for their digital content, whether it's software or you know, forms or PDFs or websites, all of that, social media, um, having that be accessible to begin with, um, I think is kind of how we sort of close the gap in terms of accessibility. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of progress has been made, but there's still a long way to go with all of that. Uh, websites, yeah. everything. Um, Yes, I think, I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> but I think, you know, more and more, you know, things are, things are moving forward. And I think that, um, you know, up to some studies, say up to 30% of social media users will self-identify as having a disability, which is a huge population, right? Yeah. And, you know, these companies realize, oh, that's a huge number of people we can sell our products to, right? If mm -hmm. it's accessible. And so I think that there is more understanding of the population and that there is an incentive to make products and websites and content accessible. So... And I think, like you said, you know, if it, if it starts becoming more of the incorporated into the beginning of the process rather than having to go back and fix it, you know, is is becoming more of an awareness thing. 
Yes. You know, having worked in VR and going to job sites and looking at accessibility with database or specialized software that they're supposed to access at the job. I mean, going back and trying to make things accessible after they've already been developed and they're not is, I mean, it's just kind of this impossible task. It feels like you're running on a treadmill. You're not really going, you know, you're just trying to keep up and manage that. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, if you're using federal funding now, you are required to look at um, accessibility at the procurement stage. Right. Yeah, hopefully, (laughs) and (laughs) hopefully we'll see that, you know, maybe in the next 10, 20 years. We'll see. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you guys both the the last question that I always ask my interviewees. And I'm going to start with Naomi and then we'll have Keiko end is what would be the one thing that you would want to pass on to the world? If you had one thing to say, what would that be? Hmm. Okay. Give me a second to think about I don't know. I think that looking at the world with an inclusive view is kind of what I would encourage people to do. And I know we talk about that in terms of race and diversity. And I feel like there's more discussion of that in terms of disability too, but I think it's being inclusive about how you interact and include others, but also it's thinking inclusively when you're designing products, when you're, you know, just thinking about putting anything out there in the world. You know, I think there's a lot of division in our country and, you know, clearly in the world right now. And I just like people to think about you know, trying to be more inclusive in every aspect of their lives. Yes. And Keiko, what about you? Well, see, that's a huge question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I going to pass it on to the world? Um, Welcome to my interviews. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. The thing that I wanted to and part two of coming generations, and particularly younger people uh, who are blind or have any kind of disability, um, that I really think you have to really dream. Because once you dream about something, and if you stay focused on it, things will begin to fall in place. And I think I really read somewhere, successful people uh, start with a dream. and. Uh, if you make it more, you know, dream become more of a reality and you begin to to think on it and then you establish your goals and then you, the options come before you and you'll know which direction to go and that you follow because you have a goal set in my mind, you have your dream and eventually things will work out. You might have to fail a few times, but through that, you will know what is the right direction to achieve. And I think I mean, that was my whole driving thing with the OTC. And I had a vision for what I wanted to be. 
and we took several you know steps that involved assessment and and getting feedback and and kind of regrouping and getting partners so all of these kinds of things will fall in place if you know what you want to achieve so i guess it's to dream and to to really move towards it and don't be afraid of you know failing um, because through that failure then you will learn and to grow and become stronger and so forth of course you know um you can't be just stubborn and refuse to listen to people <laughs> because <then> that's not <laughs> that's not really uh, understanding listening and to to reassessing your you know your um path so and the other thing that i wanted to say about being a parent because i i'm not sure that if i was as successful i appreciate naomi's comments about that i was you know i provided some inspiration support so but i think being a parent is a lifelong experiment and you do and be the best you can at the time because you really can't do more than what you can at the time as long as you do the best thing best that you have to offer um, and then, you know, learn from your mistakes, and just like I said before, and then adapt and grow with your children and to be, be a, a good role model that you want to role model the behavior that you want your children to follow. And we don't always succeed because sometimes we forget to listen, but uh, hopefully your true intent and your, you know, kind of desire for your children to succeed is you know, it comes through and that they choose. I, I think for me, <laughs> you didn't ask for this and I don't know if Naomi, but Naomi was a very, very active, very um, um, curious child. And as a blind person, that was very challenging because she, she wanted to, to she, she was quick and into a lot of things. And, and for me to catch up and stay, keep up with her was a huge, particularly with the, when she was, young and didn't know what was dangerous and so forth you know huge risk taker and she technology probably is a very good thing that she landed on but despite all of that i think we all kind of survived and mm -hmm. and i really really do appreciate the people that they've become and the parents that you know my daughters have become do you feel like you are a risk taker as well well, I think I'm not sure that I I was a risk taker per se. I think my husband probably is more of a risk taker than I am. But I mean, I was because of my blindness, uh, the, the changes that, you know, we made in our life, like coming to the United States and having to learn English. And I, I was put in uh, situations where I have to, to take some risk. But it's not something that I went, you know, and and looked for, you know, to to get myself into those. But I, you know, I faced them, and I I'm a very steady, fairly calm person who, you know, looks at situations and kind of a plan for steps to to yes, you know, problem solve, get out of that kind of thing. So, and and those are my strengths. And as a blind person, you know, you don't always do things spontaneously. You have to think about it. You have to plan for it if you want a successful outcome. <laughs> you know, things like starting with traveling and stuff, right? 
yes no bus routes and you just can't and then even walking you know you want to have a destination so you wind up there or even if you're just taking a walk you have to know where you're going and so you could retrace your steps you can't just look across the field and say oh that's where i want to go and then you know you have the goal so yeah i've always been planned for a person and i think that's probably helped me to succeed in getting to where I wanted to go. I think, you know, the life experiences gives you the opportunity to, to become stronger as you encounter different challenges and, you know, being independent, mm-hmm. living on your own and so forth and so on. It really adds to your future outcome. So I know that I mentioned that, you know, the theme of this particular issue is audacity. And originally you said you didn't really know if you were an audacious person, but I hear from what you're saying that you kind of have a quiet boldness to you, that you stick to it and you just keep steady and you go and you get things done. And that is to me what audacity is. And it it shows its forms differently with different people, but I, I see both of you as very audacious women. And I really appreciate you both taking the time to you know talk with me and get your messages out and share your lives thanks heather you're welcome yeah you're welcome <laughs> this is fun yeah i've never done anything like this together so i think it's pretty <laughs> neat <laughs> I feel like I learned some stuff about my mom. <laughs> some right. Stuff I haven't heard before. So, yeah, very cool. Yeah. This podcast was made in association with Washington Council of the Blind's Newsline publication. You can contact us at the WCBnewsline at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Credit for this production goes to podcast producer Zach Hertz, editors Heather Mears and Reginald George, and we'd like to extend a thank you to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for his use of the song Life of Riley. Thank you so much for listening and tune in for our next episode or check out previous episodes.